Well, you can grab a seat. hard to grow up, you know, it's, it's hard to get there, it's even harder apparently to watch your little brother grow up, man, we, there's something within us that wants to hold on to that childhood, there's something within us that doesn't want to necessarily make all of those next steps that are almost inevitable in our lives, the reality is that we all still have immaturity in our lives, there are parts of our life that we don't want to step forward into maturity uh, in, in that specific area. That there are some of us, many of us maybe, who still, I mean, we don't want to take out the trash if it's mostly our roommate's trash, right? And so we wind up with that insane trash can that's just over, it's twice as tall because there's just pizza boxes and Kleenex. I don't know. There's stuff just piled up. We, we're at a point where, I mean, we skip classes because, you know, clouds. So... <laughs> What if it drizzles? You know, like we're just looking out for my health. You know, like we, we skip for the, the most petty of reasons. We, we, we hold on to petty disputes with one another. We are still bitter at that guy or that girl, that person, because of something they did way back when. We hold on to those things. We let them fester and grow, and we judge other people in order to make ourselves feel good. We lie and we cheat, and yet we get offended and upset when someone else does the exact same thing. The reality is that we are immature, that we have parts of our lives that have not grown up. So what do we do with that? Do we just sit and fester and stagnate in that immaturity, or is there something greater? Is there somewhere else that we need to be pushing towards? This whole semester, we are talking about the book of Hebrews. We are studying the book of Hebrews, walking through the book of Hebrews, chapter by chapter, idea by idea, argument after argument, in an attempt to better understand who Jesus is and what he has done. Because that's the whole point of Hebrews. And as we do this, we are surrounded by a world and a culture, a society that is telling us that we always deserve the best. That's part of what keeps us so immature. That's what, part of what keeps us petty and small and childish because there are people telling us that it doesn't matter, that we are the best thing that's ever happened and we deserve the best. So we want to have the best and we want to know what's best and we want to own everything that is absolutely the best. We want to be the best. And yet what Hebrews tells us is that no matter what anyone thinks or says or does, that Jesus is better. He's always better. This morning, we're in chapter 6 of Hebrews. And we're looking at an argument laid out by the author where he is calling believers to push out of immaturity and towards maturity. And in calling them to push towards maturity, he warns them about the dangers of staying immature. And the reality is that we will fail at this, that we will be immature, we will find immaturity in our lives. And so the author ends his argument with an encouragement, letting us know that when 
we fail. Not if, but when we fail at pressing towards maturity, Jesus is better than that failure. That Jesus is still trustworthy even where we're not. But to make sense of this chapter, to make sense of this argument, we have to remember the context. Right? We've got to remember the context in order to understand the content. That's the rallying cry of Hebrews. And so we've got to remember, or first and foremost, the audience that's being written to. Most likely they are a group of Jewish believers, early 60s-ish AD, who are facing persecution. And this audience is being told all of these things mainly about Christ. And so we've seen how Christ was better uh, than the idols that they had created in their lives. He's better than the identities that they would wrap themselves up in. We've seen that he's better than historical figures like uh, Isaac or Moses, right? Two arguments ago, it was all about how Christ is better than Moses. Moses was an example of someone who did not persevere. We need to remember that. The very last thing that we just read is him talking about Jesus Christ and his role as our high priest, how he was better than any priest that we've ever known. And how his faithfulness in heaven, uh, or his role as high priest in heaven right now, is securing our salvation. We've got to remember that. And as soon as he kind of lays that out and spells out this idea of Christ as high priest, we wind up at the very end of chapter 5, where he says, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He's saying this idea of Christ as our high priest, I could go into even greater detail, but he says it's too hard to explain to you because you've become dull of hearing. Here, right, he is literally saying you've become lazy, almost apathetic in your hearing. That's what dull means. He's saying you you are lazy in your hearing. In other words, I don't think you're ready for this jelly, is the idea that's being communicated. You're not ready. You can't handle this. It's too much. It's too much truth. It's too deep of a knowledge because you're still immature. He says, by this point, you should be teachers, but yet you need someone to teach you again those basic principles. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He says, you are still spiritual babies. You need milk. You're not ready for the solid food. If I went into more detail, that's hard, that is meaty, solid uh, theology. He says, but you're still in the milk stage. You're still a baby. And that, that's not right, right? If you, you don't want your roommate's mom or dad to show up every weekend to like clean up and, and pack your roommate's meals for the week and give them little kisses. Well, I don't know. Maybe some of you wouldn't mind that. You'd be like, oh, I'll take it. No, but for, it would still be weird though, right? Like you would see that situation. You say, there's something wrong there. Like this, this person is 21 years old. And yet he or she is still having a, a parent figure coming, cleaning up after him, packing lunches, that kind of thing. Like, that's, that's not right. That, but that's where they were. They were spiritually immature. They were spiritually babies. They needed milk. They couldn't handle the responsibility of true, deep teaching. And he explains why. He says, you see, you guys, you're unskilled. He says, you are unable to use the word properly. Why? Because you lack discernment. You're not practicing. In other words, you don't know the difference between good and evil. 
You're so immature that you cannot distinguish truth from falsehood. You're not practicing. You're not using skill in the way that you're maneuvering. Uh, my daughter, Charlotte, is just now about 10 weeks old. And she doesn't know what to do with her arms. Like, that's the stage of life that we're in right now. She is incredibly unskilled at the art of arm usage. Like, they, she, they, well, half the time, they're just kind of out there. And every once in a while, I'll, like, flash on her face. She's like, oh, snap. Like, and it's, it's this brand new discovery. She gets a little excited, and then she's like, get off. And she doesn't know how to do it. But she is unskilled in that, right? She's a, a baby. She's immature in that way. She is unskilled at using her arms. She's also lacks discernment. I mean, sometimes she looks like she's thinking about stuff, and you're like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe she's processing. But I'll tell you, right there, in that lounged back moment, all she's thinking is, I want to put everything in my mouth. <laughs> Just everything. Everything. You can put anything in her mouth and she's like, awesome. This is great. Puppy tongue? Awesome. Puppy paw? Great. We have a dog, and it's, they're way too intimate. But uh, we, they... <laughs> she has no discernment, right? Like, she has no ability to distinguish. This belongs in my mouth. This does not. She has not practiced that skill. She lacks that because why? She's a baby. She's immature. The author is telling his audience, that's where you are. You are unskilled. You are immature. You need practice. You need perspective on what is good and what is bad. Because you don't have those things, I can't give you deeper teaching. In other words, your immaturity has disqualified you from a higher advanced lesson, a deeper theology. This is why we here at Grace really, really push leadership. This is why we're opening up, I think this week, uh, either today or the next few days, uh, we are starting our recruitment for leaders for our college Bible studies. And we push this hard. Man, you're going to be hearing it now. I'm going to announce it again at the end of the service. I'm going to announce it next week. We push leadership hard. Not so that we can fill, check off little boxes so that we can fill spots and needs in our organization. It's not just so that we can find more cogs to put in the machine. Our desire in, in pushing leadership, our desire to bring you and recruit you is so that we can shape you into teachers who are eagerly seeking greater understanding of the Lord, who are skilled at using the word. We want you to be shaped into someone who has discernment to distinguish good from evil, truth from falsehood. That's what we want for you more than anything else. Because many of us are at a point where we should be teachers. And yet we're not teaching. Why? Because we're still babies. We're stuck on milk when we need solid food. why we ask every year teach lead because we'll get you ready we'll get you there we will shape you and train you and equip you to take that next step to to pursue that maturity because that's exactly what the author is calling these people to do he says we need to leave the elementary doctrine of christ go on to maturity, or in other words, press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, uh, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. 
The author says there are basic truths, there are basic principles, there is milk that we need to move beyond. There are certain things that we need to kind of just get locked down. And he uses uh, six examples, and he kind of divides them up. Two things from their past, two things from their current situation, and two things from their future. He says, in the past, right, you've put your faith in the Lord. You've realized that works are dead, are useless. He he says we need to move beyond the the basis of salvation. We need to move beyond uh, the washings, laying on of hands. In other words, the interactions that we have with one another. The fellowship that we're called to, the community that we're supposed to build and facilitate. He says, yeah, we know that that's a thing. We need to move on. There there should be a basic knowledge of the future, of the end times, where there will be a resurrection. Where we will be bodily resurrected. We need to know that and, and move even past it. We need to know that there is an eternal judgment. We need to understand how that works. Which even as we read this, even as I was talking with one of our fellows this week, uh, he was like, man, like the, these, these are some pretty intense basics, right? In, in our current culture, in our current kind of mindset, or in our current uh, kind of popular theology, man, we don't spend a lot of time on some of these issues. We don't talk a lot about the laying on of hands. We might not have a lot of knowledge about the eternal judgment or what the resurrection looks like. Guy I was talking to said, you know, it feels like, you know, he's moving from milk and by the end he's in like weird like strawberry Nesquik territory. You know, like it's some funky milk by the end of it. Like there's, there's some crazy stuff going on right there. And yet the author, man, he's saying, no, these are basic. These are basic principles. These are basic truths that we need to have a grasp of, that we need to have a handle on. We need to know these things and then move beyond them, but only if. Only if God permits. We will do this only if God permits. The author recognizes, we deep down know that our growth is, in, is dependent entirely upon the Lord. God has to enable this growth. But why would he ever choose not to? Right? This is a loaded little ending sentence. They say, well, we do this if the Lord permits. So why would the Lord ever not permit someone to move towards maturity? Why would God ever hold someone back and not allow them to press forward? And that's where we get to the next passage, or that's where we get to the next few verses. And I just need to give you a heads up, give you a disclaimer, that we are about to enter uh, into the blue, back, blue black dress passage of our scripture. All right, we are entering into this point, uh, this passage, this, this time where uh, there's been a lot of debate for a long time. Yeah, and explain to your neighbor right now. That's great. Someone hasn't. I don't know how you would have not. You had to have made an effort to have not seen this. Some people see blue and black. Some people see white and gold, apparently. I never saw white and gold. You're, those are crazy people. Uh, and you're wrong. Uh, Okay, we're still talking about it. That's great. I'll just, uh, I'll just, I'm going to go get some water or something. And now that's enough time. Okay, so we, so we have this great example where there is, a, there is an object of interest that is there. It is real. It is tangible. It is there right in front of us. And yet you have knowledgeable, wise people coming at it from completely different directions. 
and coming away with completely different interpretations about what color this dress really is. We are entering into a passage in our scripture where there have been wise, godly men and women who have landed on completely different sides in terms of what they interpret the passage to mean. Okay, there are great, wonderful, genuine believers on multiple sides of this argument, of this interpretation. We are going to hit it short and sweet for the sake of time uh, and for the sake of the fact that it's not the main point of the passage. That, that's what's almost tragic about this debate is that it is centering in on an idea that's not even the center idea. It's not even the main point of the passage that we're in right now. But if you still have questions afterwards, if you, there's something that's still nagging at you or whatever, please come talk to me and we'll set up a time. And we, can, we can talk for real and we can discuss it. That's great. You know, I, I would love to do that. But for the sake of time, for the sake of this morning, we're just going to kind of hit it. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the different views, uh, but for the most part, we're just going to try to keep it short, sweet, uh, efficient. Because the reality is that as we look at this passage, uh, this is a great illustration because this dress, right, this, all the confusion that surrounded this dress, it comes from the fact that it's in poor lighting. The reality is that when you put it in the proper lighting, everyone's like, oh, yeah, no, never mind. That's definitely blue and black. Right? You, this is from the company that sells it. This is their website. This is what they present because it's well lit. The other one, the lighting's really weird. This one, they put it on a like, kind of board model. I don't know. And they, she's like, uh, it's blue and black. Like, we get it. Like, we get it when we see it in the proper lighting. In the same way, this passage that we're about to enter into, it just needs the proper context. And if we look at this passage with the proper context... We can understand it much better. The interpretation, I believe, is incredibly clear when we read it within the context, the historical context and the biblical context that we find it in. And I would warn you, just one more thing on this. I would warn you, if you encounter anyone who, who, who bases or uses this passage, these next few verses, as the sole foundation of a particular belief that they have, particularly about salvation or the nature of salvation. If there's someone that that's their, man, that's their bedrock, that's where they rest their entire argument. If you find someone like that, caution them. If you're that person, please take caution because we should never, ever, ever use unclear or debated passages or scripture to to create the foundation of our belief system. We use the clear clear passages of scripture to lay our foundation. We use them as a lens within, we use them as a lens to read those unclear things. If you have a question about salvation, the nature of salvation, how it works, you don't go to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. You go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And you see clearly, without a doubt, that our salvation is by grace, meaning we do not deserve it. And yet, through faith, Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are given eternal life. And it's not by works. It's a gift of God. So none of us can boast. Not only can we not claim victory in our works, we also can't claim defeat in our works. Instead, our salvation comes by faith. That is clear. All throughout Scripture. That if I put my trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
that is what will save me. That is what will give me a relationship with God. That is what will guarantee me a spot in his family. That's what will guarantee me eternal life. So that even when all of this is said and done, even when all this world is wiped away, I will remain with my God, with my Lord, with my Savior. Only by faith. So when we read this, keep that in mind, right? But he says, look, we we need to push on towards maturity if God allows it. So why would God not allow it? So right here, he talks about a certain group of people and what happens to them. We need to understand, most importantly, the who and the what of this passage. First of all, who is he talking to? He says it's impossible in the case of who? Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Right here, I will tell you where I land. He is addressing genuine believers. He's not addressing false believers. Some people land there. He is addressing genuine believers. Why do I say that? Multiple reasons. First and foremost, we look at his language. He's saying these are people who have been enlightened. When he uses that word, he uses it again in chapter 10 to describe people who have been converted to Christianity. Enlightened means I have experienced conversion. He says these people have tasted the heavenly gift. That doesn't just mean like, oh, I'll just take a a taste, right, of the cheesecake that shows up at the table, for the one person, you're like, I'll just take a taste. Give me the whole. You know, that's not, it's not just a sample. They have tasted, meaning they have experienced it in its fullness. This is the word that he uses in chapter 2 to describe how Christ has tasted death for everyone. Christ experienced the fullness of death on our behalf. We are very fortunate that Christ didn't just kind of start to die a little bit and be like, oh, no, 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 never mind, and then leaves. Like, it is a full experience of death. And in this case, it is a full experience of the heavenly gift. We see that uh, these people are partakers. They've shared. They're literally sharing in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes upon believers only. They have tasted, again, in other words, the full experience of the word of God, the gospel, the, the powers of the age to come, miracles, miraculous events, miraculous uh, circumstances. These people, they're genuine believers. Not only seen in his language, but just within the context of the passage. Remember, he's telling them what? What is he encouraging them to do? Press on towards maturity. You only tell someone to press on to maturity if they're on the team, right? You don't say that to someone who's an outsider. If you have doubts about whether or not someone is part of the team, part of the family, part of the organization, you don't tell them that they need to try harder or be a better team member. If you were walking through campus... And Coach Sumlin, our head football coach, came up to you and just kind of stopped and looked at you and said, you were like, you didn't come to practice. Do push-ups. Now. Right? You would tell him, I'm not on the team. Right? Well, probably not. Actually, you'd probably just do the push-ups. But you would, <laughs> but you would think, as, you're doing, as you do like one and then pass out, you would think, I'm not on the team. Right? Like, this doesn't fit. Like, why does he have this expectation of me? I'm not even on the football team. Like, this man is brilliant but misguided. Like, what is going on right now in his mind? The author is telling these people they need to press on to maturity. You don't tell that to an outsider. You don't say that. And what's happened? So that's, that's who he's talking to. But what has happened to these people? What have they done? They have then fallen away. 
to restore them. It is impossible, remember how he starts off, it's impossible then to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. These people have abandoned their faith in some way. That's what we see happening. They've abandoned their faith in some way. Historical context, these are Jewish believers facing persecution. Those Jewish believers had a tendency, they had a a temptation in the midst of that persecution to back off of the Christian faith, to go back to Judaism. Why? There was incredible pressure on these people. Uh, Not just like a, hey, you dumb old Christian. (laughs) Like that wasn't like the worst that could happen. These people were facing uh, social pressure. They would be ostracized from their families. They'd be cast out from their homes. These people were facing uh, safety concerns. People were getting attacked. They weren't yet being killed, but that would come very soon. These people were facing economic persecution. If you walked away from Judaism and into Christianity, all of a sudden, all those people that surrounded you with, or all those business owners and those friends and those family members, they would cut you off. You couldn't buy bread from them. They wouldn't sell to you. And if you sold bread, they wouldn't buy it. There was incredible pressure on every single facet of their life. And so they had a tendency to then back off of the faith and say, hey, I'm just going to go back to Judaism. And when they do that, the author says, you are crucifying once again the Son of God. In other words, he's saying that when you back off in returning to Judaism, you are saying that Jesus' death, that his crucifixion is insufficient or irrelevant. You are saying that what he accomplished on my behalf, it doesn't doesn't really count. So you're crucifying all over again. It's the same reason that if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you don't go date other people. In doing so, you are clearly telling everyone that this other person, this boyfriend, this girlfriend that you're in a relationship with, uh, that they are irrelevant, that they are insufficient. You don't step out on your bay like that. We know that. We know that to be true. In the same way, these people were stepping back into Judaism. And the harsh reality is that we do this. Have you ever abandoned your faith in light of persecution or pressure or in the face of something that could be gained? When have you failed to speak truth for social gain? When have you kept quiet because you didn't want to rock the boat during that discussion in class or amongst your friends? When have you failed to act in the way that God has called you to act? When have you failed to act correctly for the sake of academic gain? You just don't cite like those sources or you just cheat a little bit? The reality is, man, we are people who step away from our faith. We are people who abandon the truth. We are people who fall away on some level regularly. And our scripture is full of believers who do this. Not just on the small level. Our scripture is full of believers who fall away big time. Who place their faith in the Lord and yet at some point along the way abandon it. And then never even return to it ever again. We see them die as failures. We see people uh, like, there's there's a couple guys that Paul calls out in our New Testament in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. He calls out some men for teaching false doctrine about the resurrection. 
These people who were part of the church who were most likely genuine believers, and yet they had been misled. They thought that the resurrection was purely spiritual for us. And so they start to teach that, and Paul calls them out, and he says, these people have fallen. They have shipwrecked their faith in 1 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, you need to speak to them and talk to them with gentleness and with love and pray for them that God would bring them back to repentance because they have fallen away. We see this happening. We see in our Old Testament, we see figures like Solomon, right, a year ago or sorry, a semester ago, we saw Solomon, a man who was given the most wisdom that anyone's ever had on this earth, and yet he ends his life idolizing, worshiping, obsessed with, addicted to sex, power, and money. That's how he ends his life. One who had placed his faith in God and yet abandoned it along the way. Two arguments ago, in Hebrews, he uses Moses as an example of someone who did not persevere. Someone who walked, had his faith in the Lord, had some missteps, but yet he would come back, he would repent, he would come back, he would come back until the end of his life where he walked away, he fell away, he hit a rock when God told him to speak, and so the Lord took his life. Moses died on a cliff looking at the promised land that he would not be allowed to enter because he fell away. Our scripture is full of people who do this. And what happens? What happens to them, right? Well, what are the consequences? And they're severe. Let me tell you, they're, they're severe. Right? They've been fallen away, and it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. In other words, there is no way that we're going to pull them back towards that maturity. You, they can't press on towards maturity. We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about salvation. The flow of the argument is all about maturity, pressing on towards maturity. And he says it's impossible to renew them back to maturity. The author of Hebrews loves to use uh, real-life historical figure examples. But for this case, he's about to use one in a little bit. But right now he uses uh, a word picture, kind of an illustration with a hypothetical situation. He says, if there's land okay, or a field, for there, there's a field that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and it produces a crop useful to those who's for whose sake it is cultivated, it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and, in, and its end is to be burned. He draws a picture of a field that's basically unfruitful. It doesn't give forth the correct crop, and so instead of blessing, it gets burned. Instead of blessing, it receives a curse, and it is burned. What does that mean? He's using this agricultural uh, example because all of those people would understand, yeah, when you have a field that's not producing crop, sometimes in the most dire, in the most extreme of circumstances, you just burn it down. But you don't burn it down and then walk away and be like, oh, see a field. Like, it's not like it's gone forever. You don't get rid of the field and throw it out. The burning is so that you can plant a new crop. It's so you can fertilize the ground to be ready for a crop that will produce fruit. In other words, it is pushing away the unfruitful and allowing room for the fruitful. This is what happens when you try to show, you know, maybe your parent, your uncle or whoever, something on the computer. And you're like, hey, I want you to look up this video on YouTube. It's really funny. You'd love it. It's a cat. <laughs> and that's it, right? You would love that. And you, they get on the computer and they say, okay. And they open up AOL and they're like, they do a search for YouTube on the AOL. And you're like, just... Just move, right? And you just, what you do, you just push them out of the way 
And you sit down, you say, may I never see AOL on this computer again? With God as my witness, right? And you just, and you move forward and you do it for them. This is what happens when you see the unfruitful, when there's something that has, that has missed the mark, the, you push it away and you put something in that can be fruitful. This is what happened to Moses. Two examples ago, the author uses Moses. Why? Because when Moses failed, when he hit the rock instead of speaking to it, when he failed the Lord, lost his faith in the Lord, when he fell away in that manner, the Lord pushes him aside and raises up Joshua. He raises up a replacement, and he uses Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. We see this happening in Scripture, and it's not a salvation issue. When Moses was taken out of the way, when, he was ended, when his life was ended outside of the promised land, we talked about this two weeks ago, he was still saved. His salvation was secure, but it was that blessing that he missed out on. That blessing is what's lost. And man, I'll tell you, it's a tragedy to see a life that's wasted. It's a tragedy to see someone who's just an up-and-coming in the faith, whether they're working at church or in a ministry or whatever. And we've seen it, right? We've seen people who are fired up for Christ and they're doing this and they're leading in this or they're going to go work at that place and at some point they burn out and they walk away. And it's tragic. It's not that suddenly their faith was necessarily negated. It's not that suddenly it turns out that they were a false believer that whole time. No, it is possible that maybe they just reached a point where they said, I, don't, I can't. I don't want to stick it out. And they're going to miss out on blessing. And that's tragic. That the Lord would, at times, hold people back from that maturity. Hold people back from being able to grow. And this is like a real downer. (laughs) And this is the point, sadly, that a lot of people stop with this passage. And they're like, yeah, so, good luck. (laughs) <laughs> go go cry, I guess. You know, like there's no, they end here, which is insane because the author does not end here. This is the middle of his argument. He says, you are immature. You need to press on towards maturity, but some of you won't be able to, and that's a tragedy. Some of you are going to miss out on blessing, but he says in the very next verse, though I tell you this, though I speak to you, though we speak to you in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. In other words, I hope and pray that this doesn't ever cross your path, that you don't even have to worry about it, that there are better things in line for you, things that belong to salvation. In other words, things that belong to those who are victorious, not just saved from sin and death, but people who are fully victorious, share in victory with Christ. It says, for God is not so unjust, or not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He says, you're doing great stuff. He says, I want you to keep it up. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, I want you to keep on keeping on. He says, you guys are doing a great job. And I hope you don't get burned. And so I want you to live earnestly for the Lord. I want you to keep your faith. I want you to show patience. I want you to be imitators of people who did that. Well, who did that? When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, God swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
He uses a historical figure, as the author loves to do. He uses a historical figure of Abraham as someone who was patient, who maintained that faith, who maintained that hope, who was able to push on towards maturity. And he uses Abraham as an example, not of perfection at all, but as someone who repented in the midst of their failure. Not as someone who never failed, but someone who repented, who was brought back to repentance in the midst of that failure. Abraham abandoned his faith so many times. It's, it's like bonker, it's bonkers, right? It's bonkers. Very first thing God calls him to do, he says, Abraham, I want you to move to this other land. Abraham's like, all right, that sounds pretty cool. He says, I want you to abandon your entire family. Go, just you. You can take your wife, that's cool. But just you, your immediate family, your wife, that's it. Go to this land. That's where I want you to go. Abraham says, all right. And he immediately goes and gets his dad and his nephew. He says, hey, we're all going to go to this land. Immediate, right off the bat, he grabs these people. And he's like, hey, let's go to this land. But then they get like part of the way there, and he's like, ah, it's too far. Let's just stop here. And then he just stays in a different spot than when the Lord called him. Right off the bat, Abraham is already losing track, falling away, <laughs> not on the right path that the Lord has called him to. We see Abraham multiple times uh, through his life. He lies about say, his relationship with his wife. They're walking through the land, and the people are like, dang, Sarah, what up? And they're like, who is this girl? And Abraham's like, uh, she's just my sister, like, whatever. And so the king is like, all right, well, she's going to be my boo now. And so he grabs her, takes her to his palace, and then the Lord curses him. And then he's like, oh, snap, it's the guy's wife. And then it's this crazy thing. Abraham abandoned his faith. He didn't trust in the Lord to protect him. So he lied about his wife's standing. His son does the same thing. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We see Abraham uh, being told by the Lord, you're going to produce this great nation. I'm going to bless you and multiply you. It's going to be amazing. Like, like s- particles of sand on the beach, like the stars in the heaven. Abraham, your descendants are going to be uncountable. And he says, okay, cool. And then he decides, but my wife is like super old. So I'll just have sex with her servant instead. And so he has sex with uh, her handmaiden. And he tries to have a son that way. What in the world? Abraham consistently, time after time, and he abandons his faith. We see obedience, but we see just as much disobedience in his life. And yet he's used an example of one who was patient, who obtained the promise. Why? Because in the midst of that failure, Abraham didn't run from God. Every single time in the midst of that failure, he didn't run away from the Lord. Instead, he ran towards the Lord. He repented and ran towards him. That's what we see in Abraham. That's why we see a promise obtained. That's why we see him ending his life, experiencing the blessing of the Lord's promises in the land where he needed to be, with the people he needed to have. It's a beautiful picture of someone who is willing to repent in the midst of his failure. But ultimately, this is what we have to keep in mind. Even more important than Abraham. The author explains a little bit more about oaths. He says, People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. In other words, the Lord is so steadfast, he's so trustworthy, he he swears by the greatest thing imaginable, which is himself. It's kind of a weird thing that he does. So he says, I am so certain I'm going to guarantee these promises with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
He says, in the midst of all this, in the midst of wanting to be pressing towards maturity, in the midst of me trying to tell you that you need to stop being babies and you start eating meat, he says, in the midst of all that, he says, please, please, please remember that we have an encouragement, that we have a hope in what? Is it in that blessing? Is it in maturity? Is it in what we do with the faith that we have here on this earth? He says, no, that's not our ultimate encouragement. That's not our ultimate hope. With this, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our ultimate hope is not in the blessings of maturity. Our ultimate hope is in the salvation that is secured for us by Jesus Christ, who's in heaven right now speaking to the Lord on our behalf. That's where our hope lies. That's where our encouragement comes from. That's why the author uses Christ as a bookend for this passage that could be very discouraging, that should be very convicting. He puts Christ and his role as high priest on either end, reminding us that our salvation is secured thanks to the work of Jesus Christ, who's gone before us, who's done the things that we could never do to obtain the salvation that we could never obtain. But in the meantime, as Christ is there, we're called to maturity. We're called to press forward. We're called to learn and grow with eagerness. We're called to use the word with skill. We're called to discern good from evil. That's the responsibility that we're given. And sometimes, sometimes, we fall away enough that the Lord says, I'm just going to push you out of the way so someone else can do it. That's the argument. So my question for you is, what are you doing to press towards maturity right now? Where are you pressing forward this semester? Where are you growing? Are you taking that opportunity for granted? Hebrews 6 tells us that we should always appreciate every opportunity to grow and press towards maturity because God doesn't allow it for everyone. So what are you doing? Maybe you find yourself right now convicted of a sin. Maybe you're in the midst of something, a failure. So my question is, are you running from God? Are you allowing that failure to push you away from the Lord? Or are you willing to repent and run towards him? in the midst of that. That's what set Abraham apart. His willingness to repent in the midst of that failure that is going to come. And he could repent knowing that God is greater than that failure. We can repent because we know that Jesus Christ is our high priest. So this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different that I'm excited about. Inspired by Thursday night, we had the collegiate day of prayer, or night of prayer, and it was really awesome. I had a bunch of people from all over the uh, city uh, here in this room, and we were praying uh, just for ourselves and for uh, our society, for other nations, that kind of stuff. And um, It got me thinking, and I realized that we don't pray together enough. I, I really think we were called to do that. The Lord is very clear that he wants us to pray. Right? It's a commandment over and over and over again. And many times when we see it used, it's not saying like, 
hey, go away by yourself, get really quiet, put on your Bose earphones, or Beats by Dre, if you're that kind of guy, and pray. Right? That's not always the instruction. Sometimes we're called to go to the quiet place. We see Christ do that, pull away from others to go pray by himself. And yet sometimes we see Christ surrounded by people, sometimes thousands of people, and they pray together, right? They pray in community. And so sometimes we pray uh, in the sense that we, we share a prayer, right? So I will, I will pray, and hopefully we're all kind of on that same track, or I give you a moment to kind of in your solitude pray. But, but I realize that we are wasting an opportunity. That James tells us that we are supposed to be going to each other with our requests, with our confessions, with our prayers. We should be praying for one another. That the communal prayer is, has great power. And right now, we're, we're all sitting in a room together. We are the body of Christ right here. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a few moments, and we're going to pray with each other. And I think we should be doing this. I think we should be doing this more often. And so what I want you to do is to take a moment, uh, and you are going to grab a neighbor, right? So let's say it's one person or two people, you know, whatever. So a group of two, group of three, either way, that's cool, whatever. And... Just let them know, right? Whether you know them really well or not, we're on the same team, right? We're pursuing the same Lord. We're, we're pressing on towards the same maturity. So, so tell them, where do you want to grow in maturity? Where do you need growth this semester, this week, right? Is it in your knowledge of theology? It is, in, is it in uh, practicing the disciplines of a prayer or a Bible study or, or service or anything like that? Is it, is it uh, a maturity just in uh, your ability to relate to other people, your kindness, your, your love? Is it in your maturity of, of knowledge, right? Of future things, of past things, theology. Just share that with one another. You don't have to be super specific. Be as specific or vague as you want. But share with them and then pray for one another. Right? Group of two or three, pray for one another. Pray that that person, probably find out their name, that would be good, that they would, <laughs> that they would be enabled by the Lord to do that this semester. Go ahead, do it right now.